0: Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zivi Books. And now, back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi! Hi! Hello! Enjoy the show. Heather Morris is the author of Three Sisters, a novel. Heather is a native of New Zealand and now a resident in Australia. For several years while working in a large public hospital in Melbourne, she studied and wrote screenplays, one of which was optioned by an academy Award-winning screenwriter in the U.S. In 2003, Heather was introduced to an elderly gentleman who, quote, might just have a story worth telling. The day she met Lael Sokolov changed both their lives. Actually, I think it's Lolly. Their friendship grew, and Lolly embarked on a journey of self-scrutiny, entrusting the innermost details of his life during the Holocaust to her. Heather originally wrote Lolly's story as a screenplay, which ranked high in international competitions, before reshaping it into her debut novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, now an international bestseller. She's also the author of the best-selling Chilka's Journey and newly published Three Sisters. Welcome Heather. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Three Sisters.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for the invite. And um, it's, I'm happy to be talking to you actually from California, where oh. I the day before yesterday I arrived.
0: Oh, well, enjoy. It's probably a lot warmer than it is in New York right now. So, <laughs> so you obviously wrote The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which became this giant number one New York Times bestseller out in the world. Then Silka's Journey. Did I pronounce that right? Silka's Journey? Yes this Journey. And now this is the third sort of in the trilogy of those called Three Sisters. And I watched the video on your website of, oh my gosh, no, I'm blanking on Lydia. her name. Yes, yes, Livia. I watched Livia's video and couldn't believe it. So why don't you tell the story of how you discovered this story and how it led you to write this book?
1: Well, the, the, the book found, the story found me. It's the way it works with me these days. Stories come to me. I was in South Africa and I was on a book tour for Silke's journey there. And I read early hours of the morning, I got back to my hotel room and read an email. That email was from Livia's son, one of the three sisters, Odie. And he'd written to me saying that he'd picked up a copy of The Tattooist of Auschwitz in Toronto, where he lives, and taken it to Israel to visit his mom. Now, the thing you need to know is that the cover of The Tattooist of Auschwitz in Australia and in Canada is different to what it is in the United States. It's just a black background with two arms with tattooed numbers on them. He left that on his mother's coffee table and she walked past, glanced down and said to him, that must be about Lali and Gita. And when he said, how could you possibly know that? She said, it's simple. Look at the number on on the arm. Now look at the number on my arm. They're three apart. I know that. Your auntie Sibby's was two apart from Gita's. We went to school with Gita, we are on the train going to Ulster with Gita. We shared Block 21 with Gita. Well, when you read that, no matter what the time of the early hours of the morning it is, and no matter how many wines you've had because you're <laughs> staying in the wine region of South Africa, there's no sleeping. Within a matter of I think only about four or five days, I flew directly from Johannesburg to Tel Aviv and into the apartment and into the arms of Livy, and her family and Magda and her family and Sibby's family. I'm now part of the family. Livy's even asked if she could adopt me. <laughs> I've had to say no.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, when she told it in the video, she said, yeah, my son just said it and of course I knew her. Yeah, she's from my town. We went to school together. It was crazy just to see it. I mean, I can only imagine the goosebumps you felt at that. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, just not what you should expect to hear. And this is, I think, this thing about uh, the Holocaust in terms of the survivors, how far and wide they they did flee, and that they can then connect through this one book that I wrote in Melbourne, Australia, when Lali Sokoloff gave me his story.
0: It's like the world becomes smaller and smaller. How did you start the Tattooist of Auschwitz? Like, how did you find his story? Like, how did this whole thing begin?
1: Well, once again, crazy. I had a cup of coffee with a friend I hadn't seen for many months because I lived out in Melbourne a bit. And she just casually said to me, I have a friend whose mother's just died. His father has asked him to find somebody he can tell a story to. That person can't be Jewish. You're not Jewish. Do you want to meet him? When I asked her what's her story, she said she didn't know. So, oh, never mind, I'd love to meet him. And a week later I knocked on Lally Sokolov's door, 87 years of age grieving the loss of his wife, Gita, and began this three-year friendship that resulted in his story. Why couldn't you be Jewish? Why couldn't the author be Jewish? Uh, he was very clear on that, Lully was. To him, there could not be a Jewish person alive who was not affected by the Holocaust, mm. who did not have their own backstory, their own family story. And he wanted somebody, and I was the perfect bunny in some ways, as I had to admit to him And my small-town New Zealand education had taught me so little about the Holocaust. I didn't even know a Jewish person growing up. Really? Yeah, well, in a small little rural town in New Zealand, yeah, very protected from the rest of the world and what was going on and had gone on in it.
0: Wow. Um, I'm Jewish. I live in New York City and... There are many, many Jewish people here. It is not a small remote town. And part of my sort of Jewish education is was once a week Hebrew school where we would talk about the Holocaust yep. every time. And as a child, I was like, can we talk about something else? You know, like, <laughs> I got it. Like, I already got it. What are we doing this year? Same thing again.
1: <laughs> well, see, that, that didn't happen for me growing up. And even as a young adult, and I moved from New Zealand to Australia. And I met then, of course, several Jewish people. I was working with some but I still really didn't get a grasp on the significance of the Holocaust. I, I knew the word. I'd read Anne Frank's diary. Mm-hmm. But to then meet somebody living history, Larry was. Livy and Magda, who I've spent now time with and been uh, lucky to be able to get in and out of Israel prior to the pandemic, and, of course, it's keeping me away right now. Because uh, Livy and Magda both still alive. They're 96 and 98, and I'm desperate to get back to them. Oh my goodness.
0: So and by the way, I didn't mean to sound flippant about learning about the Holocaust. Obviously. Oh, no, no. It's, I know, you know, very moving and I act, I'm super interested. I feel like as I've gotten older, actually, I am even more interested in reading accounts of survival, all these little stories, because yeah. each family is a miracle. Every survival story is miraculous in some way. It's 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 improbable and miraculous. And so I find myself sort of clinging to those as inspiration for getting through really anything, like like your book. So tell me more about these three sisters and their unique story.
1: The fact that three sisters survived, the entire sibling of one family survived, I'm told by the historians and academics, is an absolute miracle. I mean, Lully and Gita lost their family. So, but for three of them to have survived, they were just young girls. You know, Livy was just 15 when she was taken there, along with Sippy, her eldest sister, she was 19. And only went on that train from runoff to Auschwitz because she couldn't let her baby sister go alone. So the story, folks, is told in the initial stages in two different narratives of two of the sisters together travelling and their existence for two and a half years in Auschwitz-Birkenau, while Magda, the middle sister, is back in Slovakia with her mother and grandfather. And her survival, you know, in some ways getting it out of Magda was more difficult than it was to get Livy's story. Because you've got to imagine that this woman, even at 98, still carries the guilt of having slept in her own bed for two and a half years while her sisters were surviving in Auschwitz. And she knows how bad it was, folks, because that's where she ended up. So it's not like she couldn't picture or in any way have to try and uh, imagine what it was like from their telling. She ended up there two and a half years later. And then together they survived a death march. The death march, and you only get a snippet of it, there's way much more to their death march survival, which is going to be coming out shortly. And it's coming out because after 77 years, Magda's family have found a diary, a diary that Magda wrote in real time on that death march. In the back of the book, there's one little extract of it. We only found that diary as the book was about to go to the printers. Oh, my gosh. So we now have this incredible document, some 77, 78 pages, handwritten beautiful Slovakian handwriting of Magda, the date, the time, the police, as they were running on this death march. Germans, Russians, who's threatening them this day? But to survive that again, a miracle, where so many didn't. And it wasn't days or weeks, it was months. I know exactly, because of that diary, the date that they ran from the Nazis. It was the 30th of April. They were taken on that death march on the 18th of January. Wow. So it it, it was significant. But then to get back to Slovakia and once again to be not accepted, to be a second-class citizen, well, it was Livy, the baby, the youngest, who made the decision she would not live like that. You know, the only good thing that happened to the sisters when they went back to Slovakia, Siby met a man, fell in love and had a baby boy the one of the six children born to the sisters, born in Slovakia, Kari. So Livy said no, we're going, and persuaded Magda to go with her and train in the forests in Czech Republic, and was Czechoslovakia then. I've got to try and remember the timelines when these countries changed from Czechoslovakia to Czech Republic of so Slovakia but to then be smuggled through the, the length of Slovakia, which, you know, thankfully is not a very big country. But <laughs> still, you've got a picture, it's communist rule. You can't move out of your town. And so for this group of young people to be smuggled through that country into Romania, again, communist-controlled, smuggled through there, and to get to the Black Sea and step foot on a boat and step off that boat, on the 28th of February, 1949 in Haifa in Israel. And it's at that pivotal moment in time when the station, the nation state of Israel has is been created. So what I'm delighted about in telling this story is now sharing with readers, what it was like for young people to be in that country in that state as, as it was being created and developed not through the eyes of the politicians and the United Nations and the other folks who they say they created the state, and I won't make comment on the right and the wrong of one state being created at the expense of another, but the girl's survival there is, again, simple but extraordinary. That Livy worked for the first, first president of the State of Israel, Heim Wiseman, and befriended him and the First First Lady, and if you've seen in the back the photos, the wedding photo of Livy and Ziggy, and that third person in that photo is Vera Wiseman, the First First Lady of Israel. Such was their friendship. So the story, which there's, once again, there's way much more to it too, of the maid and the president, phenomenal, how every dignitary leader of other countries, heads of state, that came to Israel to pay homage to to Wiseman and to meet him, he insisted they had to meet Levi and say to them, she is the reason we have created the state. She has more right to walk on the soil than I do. She and her sisters have paid the ultimate price and deserve to be here. And they had to meet her and acknowledge her for being a representative, I suppose you could say, of all those young people who fled to Israel. The, the Ben-Gurin, the Prime Minister, the first Prime Minister, whenever he came to the house, which was every week because Wiseman was actually quite sick and never left his home for until he died. He actually died while still president in the home. And Ben-Gurin, the Prime Minister, had to visit him every week. And Ben-Gurin would immediately seek out Livy and he would kiss the numbers on her hand. And to hear Livy sort of joke about you think my numbers would be all gone by now because Ben Gurren would kiss them away so many times. So that's folks is the story of these three amazing sisters. They each had two children. Siby, two boys, Magda, two girls, and Livy, a boy and a girl. And today, four generations are the legacy of their survival, their victory.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. Heather, you are just a master storyteller. I could just sit here and listen to you all day. I mean, and I know you write that way too from your book, but just even listening to you, I
1: mean, wow. Look, I'm just so, so humbled to be telling these stories. I really am. And I I don't say that lightly and glibly, That they trust me to tell their stories. is a huge thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, okay, Lally got to know me over, you know, three years. I was with him up until two hours before he died, knowing he would not see the sun come up the next day. He met my family. He knew my family. He flirted with my daughter shamelessly. <laughs> um, he was part of my family. But for these sisters, and but not only Livy and Magda. Sibby died, by the way, in 2014, so I haven't met her. But, you know, I've got her story not only from her sisters but from her two sons. But also both Sibby and Livy made Showa tapes. And so I've been able to sit and not listen to Sibby's tape, watch her, and having read the translation, because I, I don't speak Hebrew. And so I have her story from her mouth. Why write it as fiction? In writing Lolly's story, I was told initially to write it as a memoir, and I tried to do that. You know, I even went to memoir school for a day, and it was a five-day course because I knew after one day I couldn't tell it under the rules of a memoir or a biography. They're quite strict. You you, you can't have conversations in them. I'd spent three years talking to Lully. How else can I tell his story if not through the conversations that he'd shared with me? And so in making that decision, the publishers said, well, it, it has to become fiction because you are in some ways reimagining the conversations that you've had let me give you a good example of of it with the sisters of of what I do and I'm going to give away the the beginning here folks but I don't think you'll it'll matter because if you picked up the book in a library or in a bookshop and you read the first two or three pages you'd read this anyway the whole premise of the story and you're going to see this in a few weeks time when another video comes out that has been made about the family and all the families oh I can't wait You're going to learn that these girls, this survival, and they attribute their survival to a promise they made to their father when they were little girls. They were three, five, and seven. And that promise was to stay together, look after each other, always be there for each other. And here's the spoiler. Their father died the next day. So I know that. They've told me that. And their whole life has all been about remember the promise to Papa. That's what they remind each other of. Now, I'm told this by the girls, Livy and Magda. I call them the girls, I know, okay, so, and then, yeah, as nice I say, it, nearly 100. They tell me that and then I said to them, what do you remember, how much do you remember about the, the promise other than the fact that you've remembered it all your life? What were the circumstances? And Livy tried to say something and Magda looked at me and he went, you were three. You don't remember it at all. You just remember us because we re- reminded you every day of your life. And there's this lovely banter that goes on between these two beautiful sisters. And Magda said to me, you know, I can't remember the details. And I go, okay, it doesn't matter. And then I said to them, okay, tell me about your home in, in Slovakia in off." And because they left there then as teenagers, the same home, both of them start telling me, well, there's a house we had one bedroom and we slept, shared that with mama. And their grandfather, who came to live with them after their father died, they joked and said, he lived in a broom closet, Libby saying. He just pulled grandfather, he slept in the broom closet. I said, Was it really a broom closet? And she said, Well, no, but it was so small it should have been. Okay, and then they describe a tiny little kitchen area and and with two chairs for the grandmother and the grandfather to sit in and a table. And that's pretty much it. And I go, okay, I've now got a visual of the home they lived in. But then Magda piped up with, remember the oleander tree out in the backyard, Livy? And she said, of course. And Magda said, every year that oleander tree wanted to die and Mama wouldn't let it. Now, that's the memory that this teenage girl has. has. Of course, it really was a matter of every winter the tree dying off, but to Magda, even now at 98, that tree was wanting to die and her mother brought it back to life and wouldn't let it. And and, and Livy piped in and she said, and the gate in the back fence, it was never fixed, and it used to bang when the wind blew and it scared me at night. So when you're sitting with these women well into their 90s and that's their memory, well, my job now is to tell you about the promise to their father and I get to decide where to set it. So I reimagined and set it in the, out in the backyard with their father around the Oleander tree. Oh. So that's why it's fiction because we don't know for a fact that's where they, that conversation happened. And so everything, well, the majority of my stories, of course, they tell me the vignette, they tell me what's happened and I through research of what yeah you know, the makeup of Auschwitz Birkenau researching the death marches and where they were and how they were i can reimagine and put the girls into it for that reason publishes science fiction
0: you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Wow, what a story. And you told that scene beautifully. And and the father, was was this true too, that he died of the bullet that was lodged in from the first yeah. war?
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It had caused them problems for years. Yeah. It was quite debilitating. And and a doctor in Koshita, which is the nearest sort of large town, to to run off, persuaded him that he could operate and remove it. And he never made it off the table.
0: After all this work that you've done so far and that clearly you're still right in the middle of doing, what does it inspire you to do now, now that you know all this right you you came from a position of not knowing that much about the holocaust other than you know broad strokes and frank and now you're deep in it and like <laughs> the, the ultimate researcher really of the entire thing and and of course our last survivors are are on their you know our elderly at this point so do you feel a big responsibility at this i mean you're sharing obviously the stories is far and wide in your fiction but I don't know, above and beyond that, do you, are you getting involved in Jewish organizations? Or is there, like, do you feel this now ownership to some extent of, you know what
1: I, do you know what I'm trying to say? Oh, look, I do. Very clear. They may be my books, they're never my stories. In terms of responsibility, the only responsibility I actually feel is to Lali and Gita, to Silka, and to the three sisters and their families. I am not an academic or historian, and, you know, we just are so grateful that for the decades since the Holocaust, they have kept that alive, and they will continue, and and absolutely. But is there a place for the individual stories that are now coming out? Um, Absolutely, I believe so. Along with every survivor I've met, you know who they pay homage to, who they actually revere? Steven Spielberg. hmm he who made that amazing movie Schindler's List. Yep. Who, when he completed that, sent videographers all around the world find survivors, record their testimonies. Now, Lillian Geeta in Melbourne made a show, a video. Livy and Sippy did. And I believe that he has some 50,000-plus testimonies which will endure. And the stories are there. Yes, we're not going to have the same access to get them firsthand anymore, but for them, a lot of them, they've been told. Are you ready to write 50,000 books? <laughs> it's not obvious, honey. I haven't got the uh, years on me left to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but now, Here's in terms of where I sit with regard to the to the Jewish people, the religion, the culture, the race, uh, any other title you wish to give uh, yourselves absolutely privileged to be accepted into Jewish communities all around the world and speak at them from South Africa to the London Synagogue and, of course, the New York Holocaust Museum and everywhere in between. If it's not obvious, I don't mind speaking. I am really bummed about this pandemic, which has kept me from travelling, and when I can, I will get back on the road and be travelling more. This is now what I it's not even a calling, that's sort of been glib too. I'm very, very happy to speak to any organisation who wants me to. And I'm so I don't use the word proud with me very often, but one thing I'm very proud of is that in Australia, that in particular the largest state, the New South Wales, in about two weeks' time, the children there this will return to school. They're on their summer break. And that for two years, what are called years seven and eight, the tattoo of the Auschwitz is required reading. Oh. So, And there are many schools in Australia already and in the UK and in New Zealand, that book is on the curriculum. And I speak to schools. I used to go and do a lot in person. Of course, it's now Zooming. But for me being able to have young students now read another story out of the Holocaust. Yes, they had Anne Frank's diary and the boy in striped pyjamas and now they've got Lani and Gisha's story. The wonderful thing is that these kids actually seem to relate to it and I know that from the thousands and thousands who have written to me and even thousands more that I've met and and, uh, spoken to. Kids, teenagers, as young as nine have written to me and saying, I get it.
0: Wow, that's amazing. You're doing a mitzvah, honestly.
1: <laughs> look, It really is like a, like every good story. These people involved were just ordinary people. Yeah. But they lived and survived extraordinary times. And they none of these survivors that I've met, and I've met them all around the world, many of them, none of them want to be in any way singled out or praised or in any way revered for what they did. It really is a matter of tell my story so that, It doesn't happen again. Gosh. Heather, what advice would you
0: have for an aspiring author, particularly perhaps somebody who's trying to do this brand of historical fiction, if you will? Look,
1: find a snippet in your newspaper. Go back to old media and look at something and see what catches your attention. There'll be something there. Uh, If you've got an interest in the weather or in military or in whatever, it's a matter of find this little gem of which they are there every day in front of you. you just got to open your eyes or listen and then start looking into it. Now, here's the thing about research, which has got me into a little bit of strife occasionally. And don't get me wrong, I, I do research and I have paid professional researchers as well as much as we can. But when it comes down to telling a story and research through the history and the memory of the person I know, don't walk side by side. I have to choose, well, what am I going to go with? And every time I'm going to go with the memory. Because I'm not sure if you can confirm this, but I was told several years ago by a rabbi in Sydney that in Hebrew there is no word for history, that all your stories must come from the memories of those who lived, survived, were part of, witnessed, experienced. That's where the stories come from. And if they're flawed and their memory is not 100%, does it matter to some people? It does (laughs) to me, it doesn't. Their memory, their story, and the number of survivors I have met, and and I get quite sort of emotional about this, who thank me for writing and telling Lali and Geeta's story in particular, and they say, in telling their story, you've told mine. Mm. And, and they often will qualify that with, I now can rest easy. I now don't have to keep trying to persuade others to remember. Wow.
0: Well, Heather, wow. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you on behalf of all of the listeners who are hearing your story and the stories that you're pulling out and shining a light on that could have just as easily been forgotten and instead are going to change lives. So... It's really yeah. powerful work that you do and really meaningful. And it's just amazing to hear it right from you. So thank you.
1: Oh, look, thank you so much. And you know, the story of Livy and Magda and Sibby, it, it really, folks, is one worth you know, knowing because they were just these young girls and that, that pack, that that sibling love. And Lani and Gita's story is romantic love, and this is what I, I like about these stories is that we've gone from romantic love to the unconditional love of siblings and that bond, which for the majority of us I hope and I presume is unbreakable. And, look, I'm here in California. I flew here from Australia less than 48 hours ago. Uh, I've been locked out, locked in, (laughs) so much of the world, but I'm here to be with my brother and my sister-in-law because it's all about family.
0: Oh. Wow. Thank you. Well, enjoy your time in the States. (laughs) Well. Get home with no incident.
1: (laughs) That remains to be seen, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly.
0: You and you and Djokovic may be hanging out at the hotel (laughs) or something. Oh, don't go there. (laughs) Okay, I won't go there. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me and for sharing all of your work. I'm just so excited to follow everything and to watch the new video that you'll be releasing soon too.
1: Yes, in a couple of weeks'
0: time. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye Bye, Heather. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.